Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. Well, it was a good week, and I do have to say, though, I'm glad we had yesterday to rest. <laughs> Maybe not everybody felt that way, but uh, Dorothy and I sure did. Every era of history, every society, has known its divisions. We could go back to Cain and Abel, and we see the sin that created the enmity and the murderous strife between them. And we can trace that line of struggle throughout history, even to yesterday's headlines. Think about the societal divisions that have been the battlefronts of your lifetime, leading to war, genocide, discrimination, and racism. The events of this past year, even in our own state of Minnesota, have made us keenly aware that racism is not dead. The killing of George Floyd led immediately to retaliatory violence resulting in burning and looting and assault, not just here but across the country. But it doesn't stop with our national borders. Israelis and Palestinians recently exchanged volleys of rockets for several days. The Russian army displays its force as it overruns eastern Ukraine. Asian Americans are experiencing random violence directed toward them ostensibly for no other reason than that they appear to be Chinese and thus obviously the source of the coronavirus. We mourn these divisions. At the same time, we deny there's anything we can do about them, either on a personal or a systemic level. Is there anything we can do? Why should we care? If we're not actively engaged in prejudicial racist activities, aren't we innocent of any sin? As believers in Jesus Christ, how should we respond? Or would our best solution be to stay out of it and go about our peaceful lives? Since Easter, Mahdi has been leading us through a study of the book of Acts, centered around the actors, the characters, and their actions in the book, particularly as they represent lives that are transformed by the gospel. Last week, he led us to the story of God's pursuit of Saul and Saul's conversion. Now, keep in mind, these are not merely uh, disjointed, interesting Bible stories. Mahdi has helped us to see what God was engaged in doing in these early days of the church. Remember, there's, there's one story in Scripture, and it's God's story. As we look at the book of Acts, we must remember that it's 
volume two of a two-volume set. So what we read in Acts cannot be fully understood without the background of the Gospel of Luke. And neither of them can be understood as, again, a mere collection of stories about Jesus in the early church. There's a big picture involved, a picture that reveals God's story to us. And in fact, we cannot understand these books without understanding what God is up to in all of Scripture and in all of human history. Often, Acts is explained by the geographical expansion of the church in one generation, from Jerusalem to all of Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. As true as that may be, as a way of understanding and looking at Acts, it's more than that. That is a limited view. The problem is bigger than that. Luke and Acts are all about barriers. Barriers being broken down by the power of God. Religious, racial, and cultural barriers. According to Acts 1.1, the prologue to the book, Luke in his gospel wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven. Now when we, when we read that, that the gospel was about what Jesus began to do and to teach, it implies then that this second volume that Luke is launching is all that Jesus continued to do and to teach by the Holy Spirit through the early church. And with these things in mind, uh, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. And we'll read the whole chapter, verses 1 through 48. <clears throat> At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius! Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. <clears throat> He saw heaven opened, 
and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. <coughs> and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped by the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. <clears throat> then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with, Holy, with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. 
They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. I believe that Luke's desire in his two volumes was to demonstrate God's redemptive concern and commitment for all nations. Today's text is a key place where we see old paradigms being replaced with a significant new one. But the story didn't begin here. In the ministry of Jesus as depicted in Luke's gospel, we see him interacting with those who are on the fringes of society, those whom no one else would pay any attention to, sinners and tax collectors, women and Samaritans, to name a few. However, it, it didn't really even begin with the ministry of Jesus because it had been a part of the Father's heart from the beginning. God told Abraham and his descendants God told Abraham his descendants would be blessed, but that they would also be a blessing. They would become a blessing to all peoples of the earth. Contrary to common belief, from the beginning, Israel was not an ethnically exclusive people. Anyone prepared to recognize what Yahweh was doing was free to join his people. And from the time the Israelites left Egypt, there were always those among them who were attracted to their God and chose to live under his laws. For example, in Leviticus 19.34, we read, The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. By his teachings and behavior, Jesus laid the foundation for what was to come. In Acts, the followers of Jesus met the challenges of change to become a worldwide movement. And as we travel through its pages, we see how man-made barriers 
are broken down. Hebraic versus Hellenistic Jews, Samaritans, the eunuch, and today a Gentile God-fearer, Cornelius. Up to this time, the church had been sharing the good news only with Jews. But God's actions in chapter 10 move the church to begin sharing the good news with all people. As the truth of the gospel was proclaimed and the power of the Holy Spirit was at work in people's lives, the gospel unshackled true faith from the confines of first century particularistic Judaism to become a universal movement, breaching the walls, people kept trying to erect. The situation between Jew and Gentile was especially bad in the first century. The term Gentile literally means the nations, i.e., the other nations, those nations that are not the nation of Israel. And the, the Jews look down on the nations because of their immorality, their idolatry, and their worship of many gods. The Jews would not eat with the Gentiles, nor would they enter their homes. And those hateful feelings, by the way, were reciprocal. In preparation for the interchange between Peter and Cornelius, God was at work. He acted to convict them both and to urge them both toward doing the right thing, to reform their ideas about accepting one another, to reform their ideas about cleanliness before God. Cornelius was a good man, we learn. But apart from the power of the gospel, all he could do to get close to God was to attempt to do what was right, to keep the ethical law of the Jews, and to devote himself to the worship of God in prayer. In spite of his devotion, when he went to the temple to pray as a Gentile, he could only go into the very outermost court of the temple complex, the court of the Gentiles. There's a term for Cornelius and Gentiles like him who lived among the Jews. This term, God-fearer, was a, was a technical term. It was used as a descriptor of this group of people who were non-Jews, but who chose to adopt the God of Israel, and to follow his commands. Cornelius was unlike many of the Roman occupation soldiers in that he was good and kind to his Jewish neighbors. So God saw these things, and he appeared to Cornelius in an angelic vision, telling him to send messengers on a 30-mile, day-and-a-half trek to Joppa, to invite Simon Peter to his home. Cornelius wasn't sure why he was sending them. He just knew that God had a message for him, and he wanted to hear it. Cornelius wasn't the only one, however, who received a vision from God. Peter, too, was convicted by a message God sent to him as God prepared both of them to meet the other. 
the Holy Spirit's work in Peter's heart was just as remarkable as was the outpouring of the Spirit upon the Gentiles of Cornelius' household. We're told that Peter saw a sheet suspended from heaven by its four corners and containing all sorts of animals, both clean and unclean, and God told him to kill and eat. Peter thought he was being tested by God, which indeed he was, but not in the way he thought. And so he responded to God that he kept a diet according to the law and never ate the things he should not, nothing impure or unclean. Among the Jews, many traditions grew up around the basic concept of the holiness of God. As we learned a couple weeks back with, uh, regarding the disbarring of the eunuch in Acts chapter 8. The temple itself, as I've already alluded to, was set up in a way that limited one's approach to God. Anyone, Gentiles included, could enter the outer courtyard. All Israelites could enter the court of the women. Only Israelite men could go further to enter the outer courtyard. And all, um, only priests could enter the temple proper, the holy place. And only the high priest could enter the sanctuary, the holy of holies, where the glory of God was manifest. Additionally, under the Jewish law, there were many things that could make one ceremonially unclean and thus unfit to appear before God. Death, blood, other bodily fluids, skin disease, and including various types of food, as we witness in Peter's vision. Some people, in light of their profession, were in a continual state of uncleanness. And I think it's interesting that one of those would be a tanner. And Peter, at this point, was staying in the home of Simon the tanner. Well, Peter knew all of these things. He knew well the, the regulations about uncleanness. So imagine his surprise when God answered him with regarding to the animals, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. The one who created all things in the beginning had the right to proclaim them either clean or unclean. This vision and God's proclamation happened three times as we read. And as we know from the Gospels, Peter was sometimes slow to understand the things God was saying to him. Though Jesus warned him ahead of time, remember Peter three times on the night before Jesus was crucified denied that he even knew the Lord. Um, <clears throat> later, Jesus asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? Three times Peter responded, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And three times the Lord said to him, feed my sheep. It seems like it often took some convincing to get the message through to Peter. 
In the same moment, as Peter was trying to puzzle out the vision's meaning, the messenger sent by Cornelius appeared at the door. This does not appear to be a coincidence. And Peter didn't think so either. Because God spoke to him again by the Spirit, and he said, Go meet them. I sent them. Go with them. The men told Peter that Cornelius was sending for him in obedience to God. God had given Peter a message Cornelius needed to hear. The walls were beginning to fall on both sides. Even to the point of Peter asking these messengers from Cornelius, obviously Gentile messengers, he asked them to spend the night. A highly unusual invitation from a Jew to Gentiles. The next day, Peter went with them. And the following day, he entered the house of Cornelius, perhaps the first Gentile home he had ever stepped foot in. And when he saw and met Cornelius, we're told he greeted him like a man. He treated him not as something less than human, but greeted him as he would a fellow Jew. Peter got the message. God's message was effective in getting through Peter's thick skull. And it's evidenced by Peter's first words to the crowd that had gathered. He said, under ordinary circumstances, you know I as a Jew would not be here visiting with you Gentiles. But God has shown me otherwise. I know I am here on a mission. Why did you send for me? Stones in those walls were continuing to fall. Peter saw the connection between the vision and the uncleanness of the Gentiles. Then he said, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. We read in Matthew 16, 19 that Jesus promised to give to Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And here we see Jesus' words fulfilled as Peter unlocked those gates for the Gentiles, just as he had used those keys back in chapter 2 when he first proclaimed the gospel to the Jews on the day of Pentecost. What made the life-changing difference for Cornelius and the other Gentiles? What motivated Peter to share the truth with them? It was the gospel, and I want to read that section once again, verses 36 through 43. This is the message. It's the core of the message that Peter also proclaimed on the day of Pentecost to the Jews. Same message. And we're going to see with very similar results. Beginning with verse 36. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached. 
how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him, um, caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. It's the same message. It's the same message he had proclaimed earlier. But the remarkable aspect of it here is that he's now presenting this message to the Gentiles. Just as the Jews received the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, the gift of the Holy Spirit was proof of God's acceptance of the Gentiles as well. The divisions highlighted by the confusion of languages at the Tower of Babel long ago were swept aside as the Holy Spirit enabled both Jews and Gentiles to speak miraculously and to be understood. The Old Testament Feast of Pentecost was a celebration of the agricultural first fruits. When the Jews received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, it represented the first fruits of the kingdom of heaven. Likewise, when Cornelius and his servants received the Holy Spirit, there was a harvest of first fruits among the Gentiles. The conclusion of Peter's message on the day of Pentecost resulted in the baptism of 3,000. Peter reasoned, if God accepted Cornelius' family, how could he refuse to baptize them in the name of Jesus Christ? It's difficult for us to really grasp how revolutionary this act was. God has a missionary heart. The Gentile problem was not a problem for him. But for the early Christians like Peter, they needed some convincing. Because the church needs to be at the forefront of acceptance and love for people of all kinds. The Jews of Jesus' day were caught up in strict observance of the Mosaic Law and the traditions that had grown up around it. Circumcision, dietary laws, and the temple cult were of utmost importance to them and their identity as the people of God. Ethnicity, though a significant part of our identity, often brings conflict. And this was especially true when it came to the Jews' relationships with other peoples around them. But that raises a question. What about those who were not descended from Abraham? What about those who did not find their identity among the 12 tribes of Israel? What about the Gentiles? Did God have a plan for them? These questions became the biggest problem facing the early church in its first decades. But the conversion of Cornelius is a central episode in Luke's presentation of a new paradigm as Jesus worked through his people. The changes did not happen overnight. 
As we know, belief and behavior do not always match up. And behavior often lags behind belief. In fact, from the time of the conversion of Cornelius until the church effectively dealt with the Gentile problem, it was probably another 10 years. If you are truly a disciple of Jesus Christ, where do you get your instruction about how to think and act? It's not from your upbringing or your clan's attitudes. It's not from the nightly news or from the Hollywood cult. It's not from politicians or professors. If you are truly Jesus' disciple, you learn from Him. It doesn't matter how most people act. What's important is how God wants us to act. This morning, I've talked several times about walls coming down by the power of the gospel. There's another passage of Scripture that, that talks about walls that have been broken down. <clears throat> and that's in Ephesians chapter 2. And Paul here talks about the very same thing as we see happening in the narrative of Acts in the household of Cornelius. Acts two, or Ephesians 2.11 Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Paul talks about the walls that have been broken down the barrier that had been built up between Jew and Gentile was destroyed. And we see true reconciliation and true peace. What does this knowledge cause you to be and to do? Now, you may claim you're not racist, but don't let yourself off the hook too easily. Prior to his vision from God, Peter probably would have said the same thing. Recognize those less than godly thoughts you have regarding others. When we were doing foster care, we very quickly learned that we had blinders on when it came to our own prejudicial thoughts and actions. It wasn't intentional on our part, but behavior doesn't have to be intentional or malicious in order to be wrong. 
This morning, I want you to think seriously about two questions as we prepare to leave. Who are you calling unclean by your actions, words, and attitudes? And secondly, what are you going to do about it? We all know there are many ways people attempt to bring about racial and ethnic reconciliation, most of which, frankly, are useless. But I know of a way. I know a way to overcome all barriers, to tear down all walls, and it involves transformed hearts. In Revelation 7, we get a glimpse of the throne room of God. He is at the center. And around him are 24 thrones with 24 elders, four living creatures, and millions of angels. But there's something else as well. There's a great white-robed multitude no one can count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language. And they are continually offering up praise to Jesus for their salvation. And I want you to imagine yourself standing in that crowd. Hopefully that won't be too much of a stretch for you. Imagine yourself standing in that crowd. And look around you. Look to your left. Look to your right. What do you see? Is it like looking in a mirror, seeing your own face reflected back at you? Or do you see a diversity that could only be achieved by the powerful, creative hand of God? Our natural tendency is to separate into homogeneous units. But what do you see as you look around you? Brothers and sisters, brothers, 